Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hi, welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. This is Rachel Fisher. Hi, this is Desi Jenikin. Hey. How you doing, Rachel? Well, today, I mean, this week, we are drinking non-alcoholic fizzy drinks. Yeah. <laughs> Not as exciting as my wine-fueled right. uh, podcast last week, but I think it'll still be great. <laughs> That's my prediction. <laughs> okay. Uh, up top, before I shout out our Patreon contributors for this week, I also wanted to give a shout out to our friend of the show and my personal friend since I was 14 years old, Chris Tognati. I just wanted to let you guys know that he has a podcast called Now We Know, and they basically dissect childhood TV and childhood movies that they watched through the, as they say, the jaded jaundiced, maybe they say. I don't know. They say like the <laughs> jaded eyes of adulthood. So it's like sort of like Going back to things you loved as a kid. And seeing if it still holds up. And they're very funny and very smart. So I just wanted to give their podcast a plug because they're awesome. And um, next time I visit my family up north, I will be a guest on that show. So Cool. Just FYI. Awesome. I love Chris. (laughs) I do too. So our patrons, do you have those people ready? Let's thank our patrons for this week. Okay, this week we had Avery, Michelle, and Timothy. Thanks, guys. Thank you guys so much. Uh, if you oh, wanna... we also had uh, Rachel. Oh, thanks, Rachel. Yeah, not me. <laughs> Different Rachel. So you're not donating to our Patreon? <laughs> I'm not donating to our Patreon. Thank you. And this week we'll have episode two up for the $10 level. Right. Uh, the mysteries, um, murder mysteries in the um, macabre. And I think this week it's kind of a mystery, going to be like a mystery app, but we'll save it as a surprise. Uh, and then at the $5 level, you get all of our bonus episodes that are usually funny porn reviews and <laughs> weird Hollywood kind of related and Florida stories, of course, is very right. popular. So yeah, check it out if you haven't. So should we get right into it? Let's do it, Desi. <laughs> okay. So we've had a few funny episodes <laughs> in the past few months, I guess, according to people who listen, <laughs> not according to us. This one's not necessarily going to be a hilarious one, but I think it is a really cool story. It's one that I didn't know a ton about, and it's kind of relevant to what's going on in the world this week and maybe for the past two years. Today, I'm going to tell the story of a woman named Patricia Douglas. Patricia was an actress and dancer in the 1930s, and she is far from a household name. I'm sure that none of you have heard of her, in fact, Um, but she should be a household name, in my opinion, because... She's at the center of one of Hollywood's biggest scandals in the early days. It was a scandal that was quickly covered up by the um, by MGM Studios in conjunction with local police and prosecutors who were all completely in the pocket of MGM. Like MGM basically owned Los Angeles at this point. Almost everyone worked for them, so they had just had a lot of power. 
I mean, if you know anything about the studio era of Hollywood during this time, it's like, yes, there was this glamorous aspect to it, but it was also kind of a dictatorship. Like these studio moguls literally ruined thousands of lives probably. Right. They just controlled everything and they were not great people. Most of these people who came to Hollywood at that time, and I'm, I don't know, it could be the same way now, were pretty much disposed of like garbage once the studio was finished with them. Patricia Douglas is definitely one of those people, but she is one that fought back in an incomprehensibly brave way, in my opinion, especially considering the times. She has been called the original Me Too woman, and her story was nearly forgotten until 2003 when an in-depth article was written about her for Vanity Fair by a man named David Sten. This article actually was something that Jackie O, who was like a book editor at the time, uh, I think this he knew her for a long time while he was researching this pretty big book on Jean Harlow. So I think he was working with her, and before she died, he was like, she was like, do this story, do this story. While he's researching this book on Jean Harlow, he's looking at, and this book came out in 1993, by the way, the Jean Harlow book. So the book is called Bombshell, The Life and Death of Jean Harlow. That came out in 1993. So that's 10 years before the story about Patricia comes out. He was um, looking through articles about Harlow's death. The other big story at the time was the Duke of Windsor marrying um, right. uh, Wallace Simpson. So there's two big stories are dominating the news. And while he's looking at this, he sees this story about Patricia Douglas taking on MGM Studios. And he's, you know, like a pretty big expert on this period of Hollywood. And he had never heard this story. So he's fascinated. But all he could find was the articles that were written at that time. And after that, nothing. Like wow. it, the story just completely disappeared after this initial burst of press that it got. So obviously he became very curious about this. And he started searching for her and searching for more information about what had happened. So he did end up finding Patricia and he found the story. He ends up writing the story for Vanity Fair, and he also creates a documentary based on her story in 2007, and that movie is called Girl 27, which is, uh, I'll tell you the title meaning in a bit. But so yeah, so all that really exists still to this day is the documentary and this huge Vanity Fair article. Every other piece of information I saw was rehashed of the documentary or the Vanity Fair article or interviews with David uh, Sten. So I'm just putting that up that he's the major source of everything I'm about to tell you today. I'm just going to give you a quote that he said recently about her and after all of the Me Too stuff started happening. He said that I think she wouldn't be surprised about the allegations coming out today. And I think she would be modest about being a pioneer in this field, meaning women who <laughs> kind of take down these men. I don't think she ever saw herself as special or unique, but she was both. And I agree. <laughs> so let me just tell you about her. She was born in Kansas City, Missouri, and she moved to Hollywood with her mother, Mildred Mitchell, who wanted to be a dress designer for major Hollywood screen stars. Like mm -hmm. that was her goal. She's moving to Hollywood. She's going to create these beautiful gowns. But she ended up really doing the same thing, but for high end call girls of the time. So she kind of had this, you know, in with that crowd. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is the same thing. <laughs> Those girls are very glamorous. I mean, if you watched, uh, What's it called? Los what is it? LA Confidential? Yes. LA Confidential. Uh, all the call girls kind of looked like movie stars or the sex workers, right? They all had like a Veronica Lake and there was that kind my, of all. That's my great, great grandpa's house is in that movie. Oh, cool. It's, it's Kim Basinger's house. Her mom had a very busy career. She was pretty successful doing what she did. And 
she kind of was not the best mom. She left Patricia off to fend for herself. Um, but, but Patricia was actually like a really good girl. She kind of reminds me of me. Like I had no guidance, but I was like a responsible child yeah. and I wasn't really doing a lot of stuff. She was a virgin. She didn't drink. Like she wasn't obsessed with Hollywood fame. Like a lot of people in the town, her age are young girls, her age or ones coming into Hollywood were kind of obsessed with. She dropped out of con- convent school at 14 and she did begin hanging out with some really big Hollywood stars at the time. And they all kind of found her charming because she wasn't this fame hungry social climbing party girl. And like their relationships are quite chaste. I'm going to give you some accounts from Patricia of these men that she hang out with, she hung out with and uh, some funny quotes. Um, so some of the people she hang out with would be Dick Powell, who she would have lemon cokes with at drive-ins. Her lemon quote cokes. Of, her, her quote is that when the waitress saw him, she almost fainted. She would bar hop with Bing Crosby and William Frawley, who played Fred on I Love Lucy. Yes. And she says the three of them would just go hang out on these dive bars and the drunks would kind of leave them alone. She dined at the Brown Derby with Jimmy Durante. His dad wanted him to marry me, but I was 15. (laughs) She played a kid sister to George Raft, who was in like a lot of those gangster movies at the time. I mean, she just learned how to like dance at this time. And the big dance at the time was like trucking, which was kind of like uh, some version of swing dancing. So she would go to the cotton club and learn how to dance. And she used to dance with Larry Fine, who was one of the three stooges. Uh, and she would comment on what a blue tongue he had. I mean, <laughs> Is dirty. That like us? Yeah, exactly. We have blue tongues too. Even at the dinner table, you should have heard him pass the fucking potatoes. <laughs> I mean, come on. That's I great. want those fucking potatoes. That's iconic. <laughs> yes. That's my new catchphrase. New merch idea. Pass the fucking potatoes. (laughs) That's like the new give me the tea. Right. (laughs) As I mentioned before, Patricia was actually a a very gifted dancer. And that's how she kind of started dabbling in, in movies. For her, it really was just something to do. She had zero ambition for more. It was kind of like, ah, sure, yeah, I'll be in your movie. Like, she didn't want to be a star. I mean, if you see a picture of her, and this is not to like denigrate her at all she's like a great looking girl but she's just not a movie star looking girl she's like a little bit chunkier you know she's cute enough but you could just see like if she got into the hollywood system it would be nose jobs thinning things down pulling hairlines back do you know what i mean like they would tear her apart. they would tear her apart and to her credit i think she was just like eh, <laughs> like right. nah no thanks like right. i'm fine with the way i am Um, By the age of 15, she had appeared in two pretty big movies. One is called So This Is Africa. And then the other bigger one is Gold Diggers of 1933, which was a Busby uh, Berkeley, big, huge dance extravaganza. Mm -hmm. And in that movie, she danced with Ginger Rogers. So that was like her big thing. But she's still just a little background dancer, Mm -hmm. uh, bit player. In the spring of 1937, Patricia was 17 years old and she was doing fine. Uh, One of the things that she had going for her is because her mom was really successful and still supporting her, she really didn't have to work if she didn't want to. Right. Um, So she gets a call on May 2nd, 1937. It was a casting call that she almost blew off but eventually agreed to do. That casting call ended up being... Not for a movie, however, but it was for a party that MGM was hosting on May 5th that it was it was like a convention they were giving for their top salespeople in the country. According to Patricia, she had no idea that this casting call was for a party. She did think it was for a movie because why else? What else would she think it was for? Right. 
Uh, this is her from her interview in 2003. They never mentioned it was a for a party ever. I wouldn't have gone. Oh God. Oh God. I wouldn't have gone. Oh no. Um, okay. So just to give you a little bit of background on MGM at this time, 1937 was a really big year for MGM. While other studios were kind of floundering and going into bankruptcy, the MGM sales exec team that was all over the country had done a major restructuring of their business, specifically in the rates they charged theaters to rent their movies. So I think previously, and listen, I don't fucking know what I'm talking about here. I'm almost just reading what they said, so I don't know what it means. But basically, they used to have a sliding scale, and they would get a percentage of the movie rentals that the theaters got. And over the course of its run, that scale would go lower and lower and lower. So they kind of switched it to setting the price based on a limited run in all of the big cities. And then when it went wide, they'd base their fee off of what they got in these huge cities. Mm -hmm. So a lot of that depended on them having really big hits that had huge box office weekends. Right. Like maybe that's the start of having needing this big box office weekend. Right. So they, they got much more money with this new system. So it was that success from this new sales sort of gimmick that led MGM Honcho our head honcho, Louis B. Mayer, to do something that he hadn't done in 10 years. In order to thank the sales team that came up with this new idea, he decided that the annual five-day sale convention that they would have would be in Culver City this time. Mayer promised all of these salesmen a super special production, uh, that that was what they were going to expect for this great year. So the convention started on May 2nd, which was actually the day she had been called for that Mm -hmm. um, audition. And from the get-go... It was a drunken party from the start. Yeah. These 282 sales execs arrived by private rail car where they had basically been partying for three days before they even arrived. One salesman claimed that the night before they got into LA that they had run out of scotch. Once they unboarded the plane, they were kind of greeted by actresses who were hired to like be there and put carnations on their lapels. Right. And they were immediately like groping these girls, uh, et cetera. So... They get there, it's actually when they land or whatever it's called, when the, when the train pulled in, they're in Pasadena. And Mare was there kind of greeting them with more, this is the word I put down, sexist grossisms. <laughs> Sorry, is that a new term? I mean, it should be. Right. So here's what he says to them as they arrive onto the stage where he's greeting his people. Our fine chief of police, Police, James Davis, remarked to me a moment ago that I must thank a lot of these men to have sent the beauty that he sees before him. These lovely girls, and you have the finest of them here, greet you, and that's to show you how we feel about you and the kind of good time that's ahead of you. Anything you want. He said anything you want to the men. To all these drunken men. Gross. I mean, how fucking gross. Especially coming from Louis B. Mayer, who looks like an ancestor to Mitch McConnell. Like... (laughs) It's like Mitch McConnell and the guy from the oatmeal box, who I guess right. is Ben Franklin. Okay. Is he? I got, He's a Quaker. Uh, ben Franklin, was he a Quaker? Uh, look, is they're all Quaker the same to me. Man? <laughs> they all have that look. You know what I mean? With totally. the little glasses and jowls and whatever. Okay. So, and, and Louis B. Mayer did kind of have like a stiff kind of chaste um, reputation. Yeah. So it is kind of extra gross from him. It just shows you that all of that shit is bullshit. Like yeah. these guys who are extra chased are always They're the fucking biggest hypocrites. Pigs, and they pigs. don't see women in a good way. Right. So there's lots of other events planned this big week. 
They were given a police escort to Culver City where MGM fixer Eddie Mannix, who I promise you will have his own fucking show or two one day, count on it. I just can't get to all of his bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> he presented Mayor with a key to a ceremony, ceremonial opening of the gates at this 117-acre lot in Culver City. I mean, the whole thing is a huge party atmosphere. There's a marching band. Confetti is, is coming down at this thing. And they're marketing this to the women as a work event. Essentially, the women aren't even involved in this yet. Okay, uh, we'll, we'll get to that in a few days. I mean, <laughs> after a few of these. But the thing that Peg, uh, I mean, yeah. that Patricia was. Yeah, it's involved in this. All of these events they're okay. planning, but not. It hasn't happened yet. So I mean, they have a huge lunch for these sales guys with like Clark Gable, Jean Harlow, Joan Crawford, Norma Shear. Like all of these big stars are are being pulled out to also make these guys feel really special. And obviously, these are just salespeople right. from across the country. So they've never experienced anything like this before. They're getting the total VIP treatment. One studio ex executive said to the men at some point, we want you to go back to your respective territories, firmly convinced that Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, under the leadership of Louis B. Mayer, is bending every effort to back up the men who provide that one connecting link with the exhibitor and through him the public. So they're building these fucking guys up. Like, yeah. you, we need you. You're a part of this team. It's this whole, they're like schmoozing the fuck out of these guys. Right. After all of this pomp and circumstance and like business stuff. But I mean, it's really about partying. Yeah. It's like they have a few business things too. On Wednesday, May 5th, the salespeople get an invite like on their itinerary. It's like, here's what you're doing today kind of thing. They get on their itinerary that day. It says, yippee, get set for a Wild West show at Roaches. It will be a stag affair out in the wild and woolly West where men are men. Uh, so the Roach in this sentence is Hal Roach who was a producer of Laurel and Hardy movies in the Our Game gang shorts and he has like a ranch that's outside of Hollywood right um where this event is going to take place as I mentioned before they had placed this casting call and 120 young female dancers most who had been cast through that casting call as well as an ad looking for hostesses to come work at Hal Roach studio or work for Hal Roach they all show up to uh, a studio in Culver City that's next to MGM and owned by Hal Roach. And it's there that they're dressed up for the call. So they're put in felt cowboy hats, bolero jackets, leather studded cuffs, um, suede skirts, black boots. They get full makeup and hair as if they're going to be on camera, like pancake makeup. And they're all put on buses and headed to Rancho Rochero. That's, I just realized how stupid that name is because it's Rochero, Ran Rancho Rochero for Hal Roach. <laughs> The job, by the way, this is the pay for their job, a meal and a day rate of $7.50. That's so Hollywood. Yeah. <laughs> and um, obviously, like for them, a lot of these women, it's like a chance to be in a film or to meet a famous person or get their Hollywood career going and make connections. Like, right. So it's like not about the money and the meal. For me, it's about the it's, meal. <laughs> it's about exposure. I'm like, what are we getting? <laughs> what kind of food? <laughs> is it buffet? It's probably terrible. Yeah. So... Once they arrive, they're put into an enormous banquet hall and they sit there for hours with doing nothing, just literally sitting there. This sounds like being a background actor. It's basically, I mean, I think that's what they think it is right. Right at this point. So according to Patricia, like, and this is from the interview when she's 80, 86, I think, it was at this point that she became worried. Despite the fact that she's 17 years old, she's been out of high school from 14, hanging right. out with adults, like not in a creepy way. She's just a little bit more worldly, I think. And because she didn't really care, like I kind of relate to her so much because I would be the same way. Like, 
I don't fucking care <laughs> about making connections. I have shit to do. Like, so right. she's sitting there. All she sees is people setting up a bar and an orchestra setting up. There's no lights. There's no crew. There's no cameras set up anywhere. So she almost immediately becomes suspicious. She's like, why am I dressed up like a cowgirl? Yeah, she's like, what's going on here? There's no movie being set up. Like, it doesn't look like my typical experience filming movies, even as a background or a bit player. It's like the fire festival. Hours later, at about 7 o'clock p.m., Mayor Mannix, Roach, and other sort of MGM execs and male stars, and almost 300 completely fucking shit-faced and revved up to party salespeople conventioneers whatever you want to call them show up at the ranch i want you to just remember that this event was being billed as a stag affair so when the men show up and see all these young women dressed up kind of cute and looking good they almost immediately have this vibe that it's like a starlit buffet and it's all you can eat for them like they in their minds it's like yeah we got fucking women here these are for us these are for us right and no one's stopping them or telling them otherwise by the way here's another disturbing thing the women had absolutely no way of leaving and there was no telephones on the premises that they could use so they're like as isolated as you can fucking be trapped in this fucking place with all of these horny drunk fucking pigs okay (laughs) sorry it's like a nightmare it is a nightmare according to patricia almost every girl was shocked and caught unaware by this thing none of them knew they all thought they were supposed to be there to For film work. a movie and now they're at this party and like all of them are very young and like um, terrified probably according to douglas you'd never think that they'd pull something like this you're trusting with the studios you're not expecting Expecting anything except to work in a movie. That's what you're there for. Like, no one would have ever thought that this was what was going to be happening. The bar was serving scotch and champagne, and I'd like to say that they had 500 cases of champagne for 300 men. They want to get everyone wasted. They want to get everyone fucking wasted. Uh, Rachel, you'll be happy to know that they were serving barbecue. <laughs> I love barbecue. <laughs> they had a big buffet of barbecue that was like that. They had some other live performances and a boxing exhibition. So they had like things going on at this uh, party. There was other things that the men could do besides harass women, but that was probably what they loved doing the most. Patricia was sort of trying to make the best of it. So she's on the floor and like one of their things was that they were instructed to give dance lessons to these men, which is so creepy to me because it's like, that's just leading to touching and like being close. Right. It's not a innocent, no. fun thing. No. One of the men who uh, approached Patricia for a dance l- lesson was a Chicago sales rep named David Ross. He was 36 years old. Uh, one of the things I saw was described him as a Catholic bachelor, which is like what the, the fuck worst, is that? The worst Tinder bio ever. <laughs> Come on. And as I said, he approached Patricia for a dance lesson. He wanted to learn how to truck, which I told you was her sort of specialty. And according to Patricia in this interview, she found him completely repulsive. She said he was slimy with eyes that bulge like a frog. And by the way, I, I have seen pictures of him and we'll post is them. He? He's disgusting. <laughs> like he is exactly what you think he looks like. Like he has like almost like a fat Peter Laurie <laughs> look to him. I mean, he looks like a creep like there's just no way to say it otherwise so i mean i think i had you know obviously i mentioned that all of her encounters with men up to this point were very chaste she had no experience with men so this is a completely new thing she's dealing with here right like a lecherous creep 
Uh, she eventually loses him by going to the restroom, and she complained about him to the bathroom attendant there that he kept trying to cop a feel. Right. Uh, so she was, you know, feeling fucking uncomfortable. She's, yeah. To say the least. By 10 p.m., this was no longer the quaint Wild West theme party that they were trying to sell. It was like fucking legit Wild West shit happening. It was like uh, Westworld. Yeah. <laughs> it was Westworld, basically. <laughs> The men were all severely intoxicated. This is according to Oscar Budin, who was a waiter working at the party, and he did testify this under oath eventually. He said that the conversations were filthy. Girls were getting up and moving from tables because men were trying to molest them. Another waiter said that the party was the worst, the wildest, and the rottenest I have ever seen. The men's attitude was very rough. They were running their hands over the girls' bodies and tried to force liquor on them. Another woman who was an 18-year-old actress at the party, her name is Ginger Wyatt, she begged actor Wallace Beery for help. I'm tired of being mauled, she said to him, and Beery actually rushed her from the premises and even supposedly socked a couple of men as he rushed her out. Good for him. But it's kind of like, what about everyone else? Well, yeah, what about everyone else? But Yeah, but maybe he didn't know. Maybe she just said something to him. He's like, I'll get you out of here. But yeah, you'd kind of think, well, now they're just going to go to somebody else, right? I mean, obviously, Patricia was not taken to safety. She had infuriated gross frog pig David Ross, who was extra out- outraged that someone who was there for him and someone who had who was basically nothing had dared to not want him. And he decided he was going to teach Patricia a lesson. According to Patricia, he and another man held me down. One pinched my nose, so I had to open my mouth to breathe. Ugh. Then they poured a whole glass full of scotch and champagne down my throat. Oh, I fought, but they thought it was funny. I remember a lot of laughter. As soon as her tormentors left her, Douglas fled to the bathroom and threw up. She still felt sick and wobbly, so she went outside to get fresh air and escape. Like, you know, you know how those kind of parties can feel claustrophobic? Right. So she just goes out to get fresh air. It was while she was there staring out into like a field, basically, like just trying to kind of compose herself. Yeah. She felt a hand go around her mouth. David Ross said in her ear, make a sound and you'll never breathe again. He then dragged her to a parked car and pinned her onto a back seat and said to her, I'm going to, I'm going to destroy you. When Douglas started to black out, he slapped her with the back of his hand and snapped, cooperate. I want you awake. So at approximately 1130 PM, and this is almost seven hours since she arrived at this ranch, a parking lot attendant named, uh, attendant named Clem South heard screams and then saw her staggering towards him. She said to him, by the way, her eyes are swollen shut, so he oh did maybe beat her or something. My God, isn't anything sacred around here, she said to him as she approached. And he said initially that he saw David Ross running away from where she was walking from. Patricia was immediately taken to Culver City Community Hospital, and she was obviously quite distraught some of what she said here truly breaks my heart and I know this feeling very well like it reminds me of things I went through or feelings I had about stuff like this so I'm just giving you a warning it's really sad the examination was obviously very hard for her Um, according to her it was the first time she had ever been undressed in front of anyone including her mother and that's just like an indication of how modest she was According to her, she was given a cold water douche, then the doctor examined her. So it's no surprise that they didn't find anything because the douche had basically removed all evidence. 
Another fucked up tidbit here is that the reason Patricia was taken to this hospital was that so she could be treated by uh, Dr. Edward Lindquist, who co-owned the hospital, and his practice was largely dependent on MGM Studios. Wow. Uh, In fact, MGM Studios described him as the company's family doctor. Because of the douching, Lindquist gave his report, and he said basically that there had been no intercourse because there was no evidence of semen or any other kind of blood or... Look, you know, like fluids right. like that that would right. indicate uh, trauma. So, I mean, the douching seems pretty suspicious to me. That would never happen. No, today when you they say you know you don't shower before you go in. Right, you have to keep the evidence, even though it's hard. Like, right, you need to keep it. Douglas Douglas is driven home in a studio car. Like they already have their hands on this case. Right. Basically, no crime scene report is filed, despite the fact that numerous law enforcement officer, officers were actually at this party and watching all of this shit. Oh, go I don't down. doubt that the police <laughs> yeah. were fucking in on the cover up. Right. Patricia basically collapses for fourteen hours. Like she sleeps. Right. I mean, when she wakes up, she recalled that she was very sore down there and that her face was completely swollen. The reason she didn't seek medical uh, aid again after that was because she was too embarrassed that someone would see her naked again. It's just so heartbreaking to me. Yeah. Two days after Patricia was raped, she did something I find really remarkable. Um, She went to Roach Studios and she talked to the person who was called a cashier, but I think it's like a secretary who hands out paychecks type deal, mm-hmm. who was working there. And Patricia told her what had happened to her the other day and that the reason she was telling is because she didn't want it to happen to anyone else, which is so me. Like, I won't defend my own trauma, but I'll do it for other people. Like, uh, And she was basically handed her seven fifty for the day. Gross. And just basically, bye. Like, that's, right. that's that. Okay, great. Thanks for your complaint. Like... Right. Fuck you. The interesting thing I think I mentioned earlier about Douglas is she really didn't care about a Hollywood career. There was nothing the studio could. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm the queen of starting a free trial offer and forgetting to cancel it, oftentimes being charged for months for something I'm not even using. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. With Rocket Money, I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, I can cancel it with a tap. I never have to get on the phone with customer service. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill, and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. 
Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. It's definitely saved me money and now I can use that money to waste on things I do want. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. That's rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. Rakuten's Big Give Week is back with 15% cash back. It's a festival of savings with big cash back at hundreds of stores. Don't miss headliners like Canon, Fenty Beauty, and Dyson. I can't wait to shop for all of my summer fashion and beauty needs, and we'll definitely be checking out Ulta and Adidas. Rakuten really is the best way to shop. You can really save by stacking cash back on top of other deals. And during Big Give Week, the cash back is bigger than ever. It's the time to shop for everything you need for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Membership is free, and it's all happening May 6th to May 13th. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost on top of Big Give Week cashback rates, go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app today. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Rakuten is the shopping platform to save while shopping. Offer her that would maybe shut her up. Right. Like, they couldn't say to her, well, we'll give you a, a ton movie. of money. We'll give you a star treatment. You'll have a contract with us, da 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 I'm not in any way slandering women who might take this deal. Because right. knowing what happens when you report, it's like part of me is like, fucking get what you can get, girl. Like, <laughs> right, right. Do you know what I mean? So it's not a slight to anyone who would take that. But right. she just wasn't that person. So according to her, she said, I wasn't trying to get anything. I just wanted someone to believe me. She wanted justice. Right. MGM was doing jack shit about anything her rapist left town at that point and not only were people not believing her they were acting like she didn't even exist oh my god patricia got fucking angry okay (laughs) surprise (laughs) spoiler alert as she should uh and that anger was what led her to do something that just wasn't done back then her mom was actually mortified by her daughter's balls but the mom did it anyway and she took her daughter to the los angeles county district attorney's office and she wrote a sworn complaint against her rapist since she was a minor her mom had to sign a document being her court-appointed guardian even though she basically wanted patricia to just fucking move on and forget that it ever happened i mean I just want to remind you that she's 17 years old walking into this fucking place and being like, this guy raped me and MGM fucking they covered it, it up and they're right. covering it up. Can you imagine? Like in 1937? Yeah. Come on. Despite the fact that she knew like this shit was going on all the time. And Patricia right. knows this. She's the first woman to ever bring a studio in and charge them or accuse them of having anything to do with some kind of sexual assault. Right. She's the first person to ever do it, even though we know it's been happening since Hollywood existed, probably. Uh, and this is a major studio. This is MGM, the right. biggest studio the biggest in the one. world with the most connections in that town. Also, we need to understand, like, at this period, even if you're successful in pro- prosecuting someone who raped you at this time, you're basically ruined just right. for being a rape victim. Like, right. no one wants you. You're, you're used goods. Do you know what I mean? So it's you're like, there's no, like outcome here that really is a great outcome even if you're successful in a prosecution patricia said this about why she did it i guess the irish in me came out you know 
I knew you'd be black. I knew I'd be blackballed, but I just didn't care. I just wanted to be vindicated to hear someone say, you can't do that to a woman. She didn't really have a friend in the DA though. As I mentioned earlier, MGM owned that fucking town. And the DA at the time is a man named Buron Fitz. And he had just been elected to his third term in spite of the fact that he had an indictment for perjury in a rape case involving a 16-year-old girl, and he was acquitted of that perjury, which was a kind of scandal at that time, but didn't stop him from being reelected. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that Louis B. Mayer was a close friend of his. Of course. And a top contributor a top contributor to his campaign. I, I, They had like a strong bond. There was like a close connection there. A man named Bud Schulberg, who is the son of one of Louis's partners, and he is a screen Oscar-winning screenwriter of On the Waterfront. He's quoted as uh, saying that Fitz was completely in the pocket of Louis B. Mayer. Uh, the power that MGM had at that time is unimaginable today. They owned everyone, the DA, the LAPD. They ran this place. Patricia trusted the system, however, because what else could she do? Weeks passed without any word from the DA after she filed this statement. But she did not give up. What she did was she sought advice from a mob connection she had, and she was looking for an attorney to represent her. She found a guy named William J. F. Brown, and he is he was described by his son Kelly as being like a larger than life Johnny Cochran type character yeah. of his day. He had actually had an ex-wife who shot her next husband four times, and he defended her and his like his speech at the end is like basically what saved her from right. being given the death penalty. He kind of went for the underdog and he wanted to like help these women. So he offered to represent Patricia pro bono and he fired off, like he immediately like went to work for her and told Fitz that either the DA investigated his client's complaint or they would go to the press and fucking blow the whole thing up. Yeah. Fitz didn't buy it. So he was like, eh, fuck you, go, go ahead, go to the press. Because I think a lot of people were like, there's no way this this girl is going to want to say what happened in public. She'll be humiliated, blah, 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 blah. But this, we know, is Patricia Douglas. Hell yeah. <laughs> she doesn't fucking care. <laughs> they took the story to the press, and our old friend, William Randolph Hearst. Oh, my God. Who owned the LA Examiner at the time. He, the headline was basically, Probe of Wild Film Party Pressed. Uh, this story was a big sensation, as I mentioned before. It's like the only other stories that were bigger were the Wallace Simpson story, and Gene Harlow was sick at the time, and right. eventually would die from that uh, sickness. Rape at the time was not a word allowed to be used in headlines or in newspaper. Did you know that? I did not. It was basically like considered a dirty word. So they had to use like euphemisms, and some of them were things like, she was attacked, she was outraged, she was ravaged at a studio orgy. MGM though, was sort of named anonymously in these stories. And that's sort of like a shows you how powerful they were. Like they didn't even call MGM out in these stories. They were like blind itemed. They were um, kind of, yeah, kind of like a big studio <laughs> kind of stuff. Right, right. Uh, and then they also allowed this unidentified studio to release a statement in most of these stories. And the statement was, this is a statement. We, I mean, this will sound all too familiar to us today. Just people fucking being full of shit. We have read with astonishment the alleged <laughs> charges of the girl. It is difficult to make any real comment as to the situation, which appears so impossible and as to which we know nothing. <laughs> so it's like, She's probably lying, but we don't really know anything. Sound That's familiar? what they're saying. <laughs> right, right. So 
despite this type type of comment, MGM is in a fucking panic about this of because, course. as I said before, they're coming off this big year. They're the biggest studio in town. They're one of the only successful studios at this moment. They had just come off a scandal. Actually, Gene Harlow's husband had committed suicide two months before in like a really kind of crazy, naked shooting yeah. himself in the head in a mirror. Um, so they're kind of already dealing with that, and they just did not want to have a new scandal. Not to mention the fact, like, honestly, like, I feel like this is what they were really mad about, was that they didn't want everyone to know that they had blown all this money at, at, this party? at a party for these, like, salespeople. That was, like, it was, like, partially that, too, like, with teenage girls and liquor, because they had that chaste reputation, as I said. They began a victim smear campaign against Patricia Douglas. Now, as I mentioned before, Eddie Mannix was, like, the MGM fixer, fi- fixer and he's a complete scumbag. They also bring in the Pinkerton Detective Agency to help with this campaign. So this is a combination of not only smearing, but finding witnesses and getting them to change their stories. So they found basically every girl that was at that party and anyone who could be a witness and got them to give statements that it was just a jolly old good time, like this kind of thing. Some of them smeared Douglas. Patricia saying that she was swigging scotch all night from a quart bottle. Did they get um, a bunch? <clears throat> did they get a bunch of pick me, pick me bitches to yeah to say, I, oh, well, nothing bad happened to me? Right. I mean, it was just like this kind of shit. Right. And some of these girls also knew the DA. I mean, it's just all so shady as fuck. Like another girl said that she saw Douglas um, passed out in the Knickerbocker Hotel previously. So they're going back even before the party. Like, they're dragging she's a known, her. Yeah. The fixer, Eddie, Eddie Mannix, he, he, his sort of thing that he contributed to the smear campaign, although I think he was organizing it all uh, at stuff, he tried to get one of um, Patricia's doctors to say that she had a genital urinary infection, which at that time was a euphemism for gonorrhea. So this is like some of the shit they're doing. Obviously, Patricia, as I said before, she didn't drink. And in the interview from 2003, she said, anyone who knew me knew that I didn't drink. And since when is getting raped good, clean fun? <laughs> good for you, Patricia. Yeah. It is not good, clean fun. No. The Pinkerton de- detectives, they also started shadowing Patricia, like following her around, trying to dig up any dirt they could. So just not going off the statements, but actually trying to find stuff on her, looking for her to see if she had ever propositioned men, seeing if they could find men who turned her down to testify against her and act like she was trying to solicit, like as if she was a sex worker. Unfortunately, Pinkerton returned with the truth, which was that she was a teetotaling virgin, basically. They couldn't dig up any dirt on her or anything that even seemed questionable. The doctor also, he refused to like, commit like commit to that lie that Eddie Mannix so she did have some people who were like ah nah it's not worth it right she was also being abandoned by all of her old celebrity friends like no one wanted to touch her because they knew it was like career suicide basically mm. the stories are building up more and more about this wild west party because of that Fitz had really no choice but to kind of open the inquiry it was just too much bad press like he had to do something he brought her in to show her two dozen MGM salespeople to see if she could identify who raped her. She, without any problem, identified David Ross as her rapist. And so he was kind of left with no choice but to finally convene a grand jury. He summoned David to come from uh, Chicago uh, on an overnight flight. And David, of course, is like, the charges are absurd and (laughs) ridiculous. 
Once he landed, he was immediately picked up by Mendel Silberberg, who was Louis B. Mayer's personal lawyer. So he had it all covered, basically. Right. They were going to help him defend him. So June 6, 1937, or June 16th, 1937, the grand jury began. And like we've seen before, it was a traumatic experience yeah. for who? The victim. Right. 120 dancers, of the 120 dancers who were at the party, only two came to testify on Patricia's behalf. Did uh, other dancers come to testify against yes. her? Yes. The DA forced her to recount her rape in detail, and she had to do that while one of Ross's lawyers kept pointing at her with scorn and saying to the jurors, look at her, who would want her? So they used her, she's too ugly to rape, which is, uh, you know, disgusting. It's a pretty despicable thing that people actually say. Yeah, and still say. When she would exit the courtroom, it it was like... The cameras also wanted to always have her face-to-face with her rapist so they could snap that shot. Like, look at him, look at him. So this is like a horrible experience. Right. She would leave crying. She she says that during the trial, she felt like she just wanted to jump through the glass to escape the whole scene. And just she just wanted to not be hurt anymore. Back in the jury room, the biggest sort of, sort of like detriment to her case was the man who uh, saw her leaving the scene of the rape, Clement right. South, South, the parking lot attendant, he basically completely um, took back his story. He said that he was he did not think the man who fled the scene was David Ross, that the man who fled the scene was much thinner than David Ross, and Mrs. Ross, Mr. Ross's face is fat, which I like to think is maybe a subtle... <laughs> Little slam at him, like he had to take his story back. So he's like, "I'm still gonna go after this guy's fat fucking face." Like that's how I like to see it. I mean, the truth of the matter is, I feel bad for this guy. Uh, well, he, he might have been paid off. By he the was studios. paid off. He was offered a lifetime job at the studio. Um, he had a lot of young kids, and it was like he would never work again. They took he, advantage of him. They took advantage of him. So it's like I have sympathy for him, even though I hate that he had to do it. Long story short, the grand jury did not indict. David Ross. Now, most of her, I mean, I'm going to describe them as oppressors, <laughs> considered that the case closed. But this is not what happened. A month later, she went with her mother, who was still acting as her guardian, and she filed a suit in Los Angeles County Superior Court against David Ross, Eddie Mannix, Hal Roach, a casting assistant named Vincent Conniff, and John Doe 1 to 50 for their unlawful conspiracy to fi- defile, debauch, and seduce her and other dancers for the immoral and sensual gratifications of male guests. So it's like a civil suit. She asked for $500,000 in damage. <laughs> so obviously this made headlines. This I mean, and I say this affectionately, this bitch is not going down without a fight. Like, she's like, fine, you don't want to do a criminal thing? I'm going to fucking sue you in civil court. So MGM issued no public statement at this point, but in private memos, they referred to her as their girlfriend, and then they kept rewarding more people with jobs to get them to perjure themselves in court. I mean, calling her their girlfriend is sort of disgusting to me. Like, oh, look, our girlfriend's back suing us again. So they found more people to basically contradict her. They were all liars or paid to perjure. The problem is, as much as they wanted to keep letting things disappear, They really couldn't. Um, The studio had been told by their insurer that if they were found responsible and had to pay these damages, their insurance would not cover it. MGBM would have to pay this uh, out of pocket or whatever. So what they did was they kept trying to stall the proceedings. David Ross, like, was never contacted 
to testify. Like they just kept doing all these little legal maneuvers to kind of keep things getting stalled. Finally, on February 9th, 1938, a superior court judge dismissed the case. Douglas, though, however, did not give up. 24 hours after the judge dismissed the case, again with her mom, like signing everything for her, she filed an identical suit in U.S. District Court. And this is a legal first. Patricia filed this suit as a federal case and she based it on the fact that her civil rights were violated. And that is so fucking badass to me. She's wow. basically saying, when I got raped and you guys let it happen, you violated my civil they rights. They absolutely did. Yeah. And this is the first time any woman ever did that. And I think at this point she's 18. Like she's young. Still, I mean, I, the fact that she just keeps going is it's I incredible. It. It's really incredible. So the timing for this is really bad for MGM because it's basically business related. Like I said before, their income had soared at this point to, to being like one of the biggest movie making, money making in the movie industry. Louis B. Mayer was earning $1.2 million per year and he was the highest paid executive in the United States of any company. And Eddie Mannix had just signed a five-year contract with Lowe's that guaranteed them both a percentage of profits. So obviously a federal rape case is something they don't want to deal with and right. Patricia needs to be stopped. So they kind of figured they can't pay her off. They can't stop her. The only thing they could do at this point was go after her attorney who I said before was kind of a Johnny Cochran type and in the press and loved attention. And that's kind of how they started going after her. Yeah. He hated Burton Fitz, the DA at the time. And he wanted to challenge his, this guy he hated in the next election and you can't be in litigation with MGM when you want to run for office in L.A. So basically, he fucked Patricia over, her attorney. Whoa. He um, wanted to run in this race more than he wanted to help her. He failed to appear in court three consecutive times until a federal judge finally dismissed the case for want of prosecution. There was other reasons. Some other defendants didn't show up. I mean, no one was showing up on the other side, obviously, if he wasn't showing up. And there's speculation that MGM was in on it because they didn't show up. So he must have told them, hey, I'm not showing up too. Like, there's also speculation that the mom fucked her over too because she could have protected uh, Patricia's interest by filing a complaint against the lawyer. But she didn't. She didn't do it because that's malpractice. Yeah. So they would have read opened the case with a new lawyer and given her that time. So she never got to reopen the case because her mom never filed the proper documents. There were even questions that it was possible. Did, was she paid off by MGM? And that's why she didn't. And, you know, but there's no proof of that. Brown did end up losing the election. So that's good. And then the author of the essay I, I read or the um, article I read, he said like that her mom got her comeuppance too because she married an alcoholic gambler who blew through her life savings and then disappeared. So, I mean, at least all these bad people are getting some shit happening to them in some ways. According to Douglas, even though her quest was obviously doomed from the start, I never sued about money. That's not me. And it wasn't for glory. It was just to make them stop having those parties. And besides, money can't cure a broken heart. Um, so, so one other happy news here. Please. <laughs> Six years... Uh, in 1957, Louis Bermer succumbed to leukemia. <laughs> Sorry. Is that the happy news? That's some happy news. Ten months after that, David Ross, the rapist, died of a really horrible case of rectal cancer. Okay. Uh, the DA, Burton Fitz, ended up killing himself. <laughs> I'm sorry, 
for laughing. I just like all these bad ends for these fucking pricks. It's like the end of a uh-huh. Paul Thomas Anderson exactly. movie. Exactly. <laughs> I'm wrapping it. <laughs> uh, Eddie Maddox did die in 1963. And before he died, he was asked in an interview, whatever happened to that girl who took on MGM? And he said in the interview, we had her killed. Uh, and that's true. They like, killed they her? No, they didn't kill oh, her. Oh, okay. But they basically did. She became, she disappeared. The story was gone. Like, they got right. rid of it. And they, yeah. uh, by its extent, they got rid of her. That is until David Sten brought the spotlight back on this story with that Vanity Fair piece in uh, 2003. So David interviewed Patricia for that article. I said before she was 86 years old at the time. Uh, in the article, and there's a lot of sad stuff I'm going to get into right now, where she's looking back on her life. She said, it ruined my life. It absolutely ruined my life. They put me through such misery. They took all of my confidence away. And when I die, the truth will die with me. And that means those bastards win. I went from little Miss Innocent to a tramp. I did it to demean myself. I was worthless, a fallen woman. She got married three times in five years, and two of her husbands were bigamist. This is what kills me about (laughs) people, usually men, who say, well, why didn't she report? Why didn't she report? And it's like, this is why, because the way way that the system is put in place and still is put in place for sexual assault victims is that it's spirit crushing. It's you're going to do it all for nothing. You're going to do. I mean, like there is such a slim chance of getting justice for these kinds of situations that most people just feel like, why even bother? I didn't go to the police. Yeah. And I think I said something to this before, maybe on Twitter or something. It's like, I reported and they still didn't believe me. Like, right. it doesn't work out. It, like, when you <laughs> that's rep- not the, right. the litmus test we need to be going off of. No. And here's an example of someone who really tried to she do something. She did everything, and still, quote unquote, you're supposed to do right. that people, you know, ignorant people say, oh, well, why didn't she do this? Like, this girl, this woman did everything right. that people say you're supposed to do. And that's why I really wanted to tell this story this week because it was like, it's here's important. a classic example of someone who did everything she could possibly do and it was stopped at every fucking turn. Right. And guess whose life is ruined Hers. at the end. She also said, and this is so horrible to me, I was all washed up with fellas at 37. After that, I never had a relationship or sex again. I've never been in love. I've never had an orgasm. I was frigid. And she never recovered from that. She eventually, as if it's not tragic enough, she settles in Bakersfield. Oh, God. <laughs> like, come on. Can uh, we just give this poor woman a fucking break? Is she still alive? No. Oh. I mean, she was old. In tw- she was right, 86 in 2003. Right. So it's not like she died a, a tragic death. But uh, I mean, kind of a tragic life. She, here's another thing that broke my heart. She never told anyone what had happened to her, which was basically the defining moment in her life. She said in this interview, there's nobody in this world who really knows me. And it's like, she hid that her whole life. And like, no one knew why she did what she did. Like, she just kept it all inside to herself. And it's just heartbreaking. Because she was, she was punished for telling what had happened. And it was just kind of like, okay, now I'm going to shut it down. Right. Like, so she probably never, you know, sought therapy. Oh God, no. Right. Or, yeah. It's just so tragic. It's tragic. Uh, she said to David in the interview, before you found me, I was getting ready to die. I'd buy less food. I wasn't planning to be around long. Now I don't want to go. Now I have something to live for. And for the first time, I'm proud of myself. 
Uh, Patricia did die shortly after the article was released. So she did get to know that she had this her story last was heard. impact and her story was finally heard. So, I mean, that's kind of a positive ending. Like, I'm glad she got that. As I mentioned before, there was a documentary on this case called Girl 27. And the name of the, the title is um, her list, her name on the list of the right. girls who were showing up at that party. She was Girl 27 on the call sheet or whatever. Right. In this um, documentary, we do meet a few other people who were inspired by Patricia. I mean, it's, <laughs> they're not exactly happy stories either, but I'll just touch on them a bit. One of the women's one of the women was a, a young singer named Eloise Spawn, and um, Patricia inspired her to come forward about her rape by an MGM executive. But her case was also mishandled in very similar way. She never received justice. She stopped singing and got depressed and died of suicide years later after the incident. Another woman named Peggy Montgomery, who worked um, as a film extra during the same period as Patricia and Eloise, uh, she speaks in this documentary. She uh, was still alive when it was made. And she just talks a lot about the misogyny that was rampant through the industry at the time. But we know, still, still, still it's is. still the time. At 16, I went to work for MGM. I considered it a windfall. There was an air, a constant air of being pursued. All the men tended to try to break women down. They were very aggressive men. Twice I was asked to be to go to be interviewed, and the guy got up and said, well, let's see your legs. And you'd pull up your skirt, and he'd say, turn around, honey, pull it up higher. And then he'd say, let's see how you feel. And then he'd walk around the desk and grab you. You couldn't go to the Citizens News and say, you know, Mr. So-and-so did this to me at MGM. No way. The studios owned Hollywood. I mean, this is no exaggeration. It was one of a... It was one of the laws I learned very early on. Even the adults were afraid. Everybody seemed to be afraid of something except the men who were pursuing girls. And that's just still that's so it. true. Like, that's it. They're not afraid. Like They know the they chances are power. nothing will happen to them. So there's this picture of my grandmother when she was 16, and she's at the Warner Brothers studio with her dad, my great-grandpa, who worked for Warner Brothers for like, 50 years or 60 years and my grandma is in the picture talking to Joan Crawford I'll post it on our page but I asked my grandma obviously I'm like what's the story behind this picture you got to meet Joan Crawford like that's amazing and she's like oh well you know I was like kind of trying to be an actress like I was doing plays at the high school and community theater and I was going in for screen tests and I told Joan Crawford about it and she said just know this town is awful to women. They're horrible to women. Yeah. And you should be afraid. That's what we should all hear the minute we come out of the pussy. (laughs) (laughs) This world is awful to women. Right. (laughs) Honey, be strong. Yeah, be strong. (laughs) Oh, my God. But, yeah, that I mean, that always stuck with me. Right. And it's like (laughs) – I just want to say this. The New York Times refused to run her obituary because she wasn't significant enough when she died in 2003 – they said they needed something more than just the story that David Ugh. had uncovered, which is so horrible to me. I mean, obviously, I feel like she deserves much more than that. Yeah, I mean, I feel like this movie came out in 2007, and I I feel like I borderline heard of it but didn't really know what it was. Yeah. And I feel like, gosh, if it had come out, like, last year or right. whatever, it would have had much more impact. So part of my hope is that, like, maybe, like, we have a small impact where more people will hear her story. Yeah. Because I feel like it's super relevant now. Oh, yeah. And it just shows you, 
it's like we said before, it's just like a perfect example of how you can't do anything right, right. in a situation. You could do everything by the book and by the law, and it's still it's still going to fail, most likely. I right. mean, that's how difficult it is. Well, that's the way the system is set up, and people... And clearly, this is someone who did not do it for money or fame, and it's like, her life was ruined. Right. Like, there was no... There's no plus side to what she did, no. except for hopefully being an inspiration uh, to other people. Yeah. I mean... I mean, I'm so glad we got to hear this story. I was like nervous when you came here. <laughs> like, I mean, I've been in a fog all week just on a, I know. on a personal note. I've been like really sort of, I I mean, just kind of like re-traumatized once right. again. Me so, too. Like, and when I decided to make the switch, it's like I wasn't thinking. And then part of me was like, oh, like, right. shit, like, is this going to be too heavy this week? But I just no, thought I'm glad ultimately you, like, I'm glad we you did know this what? Story. It's a good story. And yeah. she's a great person and cool and fucking like badass can get thrown around a lot, but this is legit, <laughs> like a badass right. woman. Uh, so it's I'm glad she got it out finally, and she knew, like she knew her story was getting out. So that's also extra great. Like she could finally die, knowing that everyone knew what had happened to her. Right. Which I imagine, it's it's sad. It's like it's one of those things where people die right when they know something. Right. It's like okay, now I can let go, like right, uh, and stop suffering or stop hurting. Yeah. So yeah, that is the story of Patricia Douglas. That is incredible. That is an incredible story. I I had never heard that story before. I didn't Why would either. I have heard like, it? Yeah, I mean, so yeah, go read the whole Vanity Fair piece. I mean, I covered almost everything in it because, like I said before, it was one of the only things that really talk about her. Yeah. I feel like this is a great movie. I don't know why anyone hasn't made it yet. And definitely check out the documentary too because there's more about MGM and more women speaking out about their sort of situations that happened to them uh so yeah um that's that okay <laughs> do oh, we have any other things we want to just rachel's movie corner really okay. quick uh one of my oldest friends sam wrote and directed a movie that just opened in theaters it's called Assass- assassination nation i just saw it last night it's fucking amazing and that's my movie corner for this week for this week go see it go see it uh the other thing i just want to remind you is to go leave a review on itunes a lot of you talk about how you don't have money for patreon and that is completely understandable but one way you can help us if you want to is leave us a review on itunes that really helps more people find the show uh we're running a little bit of a special we're going to give you a copy of uh, michelle mcnamara's book i'll be gone in the dark as a prize for our favorite review of the month. And I guess there's two more weeks for you to do that. So we'll remind you next week as well. Leave us a funny review. We already have some really great ones. So you have some, you have some work to do if you're going to get that book. Uh, so yeah, we'll send you that. And if you want something signed or the book signed, we'll do that too. Uh, we'll work it out. So yeah, go to iTunes, leave us a review. We love it. We love it. Okay. <laughs> okay. Bye. bye.